0: Beyond the Babel is now in session.
1: One way that I've described it to people is you started with one mindset or one point of view on the issue. And and then as you educated yourself over the course of doing this documentary, you had some really big aha moments. Could you just Oh, talk?
0: totally. Absolutely. I mean, I start and that was really my intention with all of this was it ended up being a journey and I just wanted to be a guide as if you were going through the same thing I was going through. And what it started out was, I thought I had a focus on just trafficking. I was not familiar with sex work. And so I thought I wanted to do this documentary on trafficking in the United States. And then when we started reporting, I realized, oh my gosh, we can't, we can't do this without actually reporting on the sex trade in the US.
1: Beyond the collab of Babel, Meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babble, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the of Babble, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babel. A podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Nor Tagori, podcast host, journalist, and activist. Nor hosts the eight-episode podcast series "Sold in America." Sold in America. Journeys into the World of Selling Sex in the United States. This deeply personal series takes listeners across the country to meet the human faces of of this billion-dollar trade and uncovers its surprising misconceptions. Good morning, Nor. How are you today?
0: I'm so good. How are you today?
1: Good. Thank you for joining me on this Zoom call. Um, I also wanted to congratulate you. I've seen recently that you and your team won uh, an award for Sold in America. Yeah, we won a
0: couple of awards. We won uh, Gracie's, which is a media award, um, and it hasn't been announced yet, but we won an award with uh, Not on My Watch, which is an advocacy group um, to combat human trafficking, and so they're giving me an award on being an advocate.
1: Well deserved. Thank you uh, for joining me. And I'll tell you, I listened to your podcast. It was it was very it it, it impacted me very deeply. This is an issue that working in the Colorado courts, working especially in the juvenile courts, I've received a lot of exposure around these issues recently. But when I listened to your podcast, it really moved me, and I decided I would reach out to you and ask if you would do an interview so that I could share this with the people I work with across
0: absolutely
1: probation. So thank you.
0: That's the point of the podcast.
1: Exactly. So I just want to tell people to go uh, look for this podcast if you want to have you know, a deeper understanding of this issue. Nor, before we get started, I like to ask this question of all my guests What does Beyond the Collab of Babel mean to you? <laughs>
0: um, so, in my interpretation, Beyond the Collab Babel means um, beyond just saying you're going to collaborate and uh, actually being about your word and doing something about it and seeing different ways you can be of service to people. Would
1: you tell us your story of how you came to creating this very amazing award-winning podcast?
0: So I think the reason the podcast resonated so deeply with so many people was because of how personal it was. And the the podcast was a spinoff of the documentary and both of those were stories that I decided to take on because of my own personal experience. So, um, in the first episode I share like my first experience of sexual violence when I was 12 and, um, how that had changed me and like changed my perspective on violence against women in general. And so when I had heard about trafficking happening, um, abroad and understood what the term Trafficking and exploitation actually meant. I realized I, I physically could not fathom what people would go through um, in those situations. And I knew how traumatizing my experience was, and it wasn't anything on that level or scale. Um, so I decided I wanted to commit to working towards that cause, and I believe that your personal legend and your purpose is rooted in combining your skills set, skill sets and your talents with the causes and the issues that pain you the most. And so that was an issue that pained me. So I wanted to take it on in a way where I was able to do it through documentary storytelling. And I also wanted to make sure that we were doing it in a way that not only covered one aspect of the conversation, but the entire spectrum of the sex trade, which I think most times when you're hearing, um, reporting on this topic, there's a lack of, uh, reporting on the entire spectrum. It's either you're just talking about trafficking or you're just talking about the opioid epidemic or just talking about government care system or just talking about sex work. So we wanted to create a space and um, a series where it was covering everything.
1: nor the Colorado Courts and Probation is approximately about 4,000 employees. Um, and as you can imagine, we're, we're encountering people every day that are probably being trafficked. Um, Is there any big picture ideas or thoughts that you want to share that you learned while creating sold in America that might be helpful to people in our court system that are encountering folks who probably need someone to help them, but also, you know, maybe they don't understand some of their behaviors and it's rooted deeply in sort of this abuse and, and, and this control that they're under.
0: Absolutely. So one thing is taking a step back and, and, really approaching these situations with low judgment or no judgment and realizing that you know everybody has different experiences but also when it comes specifically to exploitation and trafficking people are not going to even if you are law enforcement especially if you're law enforcement they're not going to trust you and they're not going to trust you because that's what they've been taught not to do And also because they usually have a tie with the person who's exploiting them. Oftentimes when a person is being trafficked, they don't know that they're being trafficked at the time. They, this is like a form of love to them and care to them. One of the people that I interviewed in the series, Ashley Sacho, who was trafficked for years and years, starting from like nine years old said to me and she was like this was never a nightmare this was just my life like this is just what she knew and so there are situations where like this people are not going to know that they need help similar to when you're a victim of any type of sexual violence or violence in general and it takes you a long time to realize oh that wasn't okay you know so there's that there's that lack of trust and a way of communicating with people to rec- like to let them know that you're here for them you're on their side There's also this stigma of labeling, quote, bad kids, right? Oftentimes, where law enforcement or medical professionals or government care professionals fail is they label certain people as just bad kids. And that label is what perpetuates the narrative of people not deserving to be taken care of or who might be in trouble, but like, We don't care enough to take care of them. And oftentimes that lies within communities of color. And we, we interviewed medical professionals and government care professionals about that. A lot of people in the medical field, like when a person who is being exploited comes in, oftentimes that's the only person that they will be in a room with privately outside of their exploiter and in a a safe space and every day there are people who get overlooked one of the medical professionals in louisville kentucky that we interviewed who created the program to spot trafficking in her school said that she had had this like guilt because she remembers patients that she had seen who just seemed like bad kids, and then go to Ashley Satcher, who's a survivor of trafficking, who, who repeatedly asked for help to law enforcement, and they would label her as a liar or a bad kid. And those are really detrimental terms to be using and ways of thinking towards certain people. So it's a matter of figuring out a way to build trust with communities, but also checking yourself and recognizing if you are part of the problem, which we all are a part of the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I know one thing that, they, that I've been able to learn through the trainings that I've been to is that actually the, the juveniles or the youth that are in the custody of the state, whether it's in dependency and neglect cases or foster care or delinquency cases, tend to have very high rates of victimization. Is that something that, is that Absolutely. Ashley who you're referring to? Is she the... the, the she was in
0: foster child? care, yeah. Okay. Yep. So... Yeah that is it's not just true it's you have to think about like who is the most vulnerable who are easy targets um and people in government care are easy targets because when people when children in government care go missing no one is looking for them and so it is prime space for people who are exploiting kids to go into because they recognize that one oftentimes these kids are looking for somebody to take care of them or to love them. And two, we forget that when you're in foster care, oftentimes people who are in foster care that I've interviewed have said to me that they already learned that their existence equals a check. So and I had never thought about that so they it's easy for a trafficker or an exploiter to tap into that because they're not going to see it as exploitation. they've already been used for a check, so why not go with someone who's going to say that they love them or who's going to buy them things or who's going to uh take them in as like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever and at least get the like love and care that they feel like they need
1: so you're saying that they've been put into a placement and maybe the person that's uh, they're living with is being paid to, to be their foster parent. And so they've already have this mindset that people uh, get paid to take care. Oh, of. Yeah, totally.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Absolutely. That.
1: I never thought of that that way, but that's I never
0: nice thought thing. about it either until I had people who are in government care, say that to me. And also people who worked in government care, say that. And I mean, it's when people aren't looking for you to begin with, I mean, Ashley was a a great example of that where she was saying like she didn't even know where her placement was. And she, every time she would go to ask for help, they'd be like, Nope, wrong person, Nope, wrong person. And she was like, and she could get in trouble for that because you, she could have been charged for being a runaway. So there are all of these forces in government care that's working against kids like that. And uh, it makes it harder for them to seek help and get help.
1: Now, something that came across for me listening to your podcast, and and I think you maybe were alluding to this earlier, that sometimes we like to look at these issues in silos, homelessness, opioid epidemic, trafficking. Um, But homelessness really seemed to be a root cause problem. You want to talk a little bit more about just how you see homelessness as the connection to Oh,
0: totally. Yeah. So I learned that Trafficking was essentially a symptom of a bigger issue, right? And the biggest issue that that we had presented here was this entire lack of a social safety net for people at the margins of our community. Homelessness is one of those things that leads people to being exploited, but also leads people to engaging in survival sex. So trafficking technically, if you're under the age of 18 and you're engaging in sex work, it's considered trafficking no matter what. And some people who are runaways or who are youth who are homeless and engage in sex work so that they can survive technically that's considered trafficking, but in the in their eyes it's also considered survival sex so the housing crisis really like hits hard here because a lot of actually most of the sex workers I talked to got into it originally because they needed a roof over their head. they knew that if they they were uh, trading sex that they would be able to pay for a hotel for that night. And so that's where the blurred lines come in, right? Where we recognize that there are people who are being exploited. There are also people who are engaging in survival sex. And there are also people who are engaging in sex work because they want to. And the marketplace in which exploitation takes place is in all of that. Like people are buying sex in this entire markets marketplace. And within that, there are, all of those categories. So, um with housing specifically and homelessness, at the end of the day and this is why it's so it's so touchy to even get into a conversation about the legality around sex work because when somebody isn't being taken care of by their own government and they have to resort to survival sex, who are we to say that like no you can't do that and you can get in trouble for that? And if they are able to put a roof over their heads and food on the table by trading sex, then they're, and they're doing what they have to do to survive, then why are we punishing those people?
1: Yeah, and what you're saying really is reinforcing what uh, the podcast did for me. It really drew a sharp point on that a lot of what people's behavior is surrounding is survival. And it, it may look to us as professionals that are also working with families day in and day out, uh, it may be overwhelming for us, but if we really take a step back, folks are really just trying to survive.
0: Exactly. So, and my biggest thing, I think, like that I've learned is that when you arrest uh, people who are trading sex, like when you arrest sex workers or people engaging in survival sex or people who are being exploited, which you'll never know off the bat what which one it is, you're further like causing harm and you become an even bigger part of the problem. Like that is not the solution. Arresting people for trading sex is not a solution to alleviating exploitation. It's not a solution to uh, our housing crisis. It's not a solution to any of these issues. And it just further punishes people who are really trying. I mean, even one of the people I had interviewed who wasn't on the podcast, but I had interviewed her years ago I um, mean, she's a survivor in the DC area named Tina Front. She was arrested when she was 15 years old. She was being trafficked. She was arrested for prostitution at 15 years old. And she had to, she was in jail, I think for like two years. And, and you know, what's funny is I had like a, a young girl, like 14 years old, message me on Instagram uh, yesterday. She was listening to the podcast again. And she asked me and she was like, I just have a question. Why do we arrest people who are being trafficked? And I was like, see that, well, actually, it's not that we're arresting people who are being trafficked because they're being trafficked. It's that we arrest people for prostitution without even thinking about the situation that they're in. And it takes that level of compassion and humanity and empathy and understanding to look further than what the situation is. If somebody is going to jail, for or if somebody is arrested for petty theft because they're stealing underwear and feminine products um, and hygiene items, think about like why they're doing that first. And that was an that was an issue that we found was like we found young people. There was a situation of a, a girl who was being trafficked, and she got arrested for stealing underwear and feminine products from I think like a Walmart or a CVS or something, um, and it took her getting to a specific judge for them to dismiss it because they realized, Oh wait, she's being exploited when things like that happen. And I think that that just goes for the broader spectrum. Like if somebody is stealing, like last week, I met somebody experiencing homelessness. We wanted, and my family has a foundation to alleviate homelessness and we make care packages. We were on our way to make more care packages, but we saw this guy. We didn't have any, went to the CVS across the street. We wanted to build something for him. And he was like, I can't go into the CBS. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, my friend last week was arrested for stealing detergent. So they said that we're not allowed to go in. And I was just like, I mean, yes, stealing is a crime. Okay, great. But if somebody is stealing detergent, it's not because they want to be stealing detergent. So why aren't we looking at the bigger issues? And that's really like the entire approach to all of this is when things are happening, when you have very clear signs of things that are happening that are not just and do not further the injustice. And yeah. that's what the issue is.
1: I know you had a, 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 a person who did appear on your podcast, whose name I think is escaping me right now, but she mentioned that she just needed help from one person. And finally somebody asked her how they can help her. And that kind yeah, of She's right on
0: the same. Yep. She She was being trafficked and was, she said, I remember she was like on the same block every day. The same people saw her every single day and nobody ever stopped to ask if she was okay. I, to be honest with you, like I realized I never could understand that. Like if you see somebody in trouble, why not ask? But I mean, so my family, we were making care packages for people experiencing homelessness this past weekend. And we were doing it with a bunch of like people who would volunteer and we were telling people to go take it and give it to somebody on their own so that they had that own, their own personal experience. And I can't tell you how many people were like, Oh no, can you do it for me? Like, I don't feel comfortable going up to somebody like I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous about, you know, and I was just like, about nervous about what about talking and engaging with another human being. And there's this notion that like, if you see somebody experiencing homelessness or you see somebody distraught or you see somebody disheveled that you're too afraid to go to them, because what? what are they going to do? They're struggling like and if we are not the ones to go and ask them, do you need help? What can we do? How can we be of service to you? then who's going to be that person? Because oftentimes the reality is is law enforcement and government care and medical pressure, like the places that we expect to be the most helpful end up being the most like the groups that further this uh, sense of oppression, because they're they're the people who are in power who have the hand in doing something, but use their own judgment and assumptions about others to further push them into the margins. And like we've seen that we've seen that with in the podcast when we were talking to the to Dr. Middle, who originally had that mentality and then created the program to end trafficking, or there was another doctor that we, in Boston that we interviewed who was telling us about how often people would come through, but like would get like they would the people in need would end up getting turned away because they were either committing crimes or they were seemingly bad people.
1: Nor is it is it fair to say that, that even in some ways that maybe someone in the medical profession thought someone in the legal profession will help this person or someone in the legal profession, thought someone in the medical profession or someone in the mental health profession. And so (laughs) everybody's thinking, I don't even think it
0: gets that deep though. Oh
1: No, why not? I don't think
0: it gets that deep because if you're not asking somebody if they need help, I think it just goes through, Oh, you put yourself in this situation. Oh, you're addicted to opioids. Oh, that's your fault. Yeah. And we have that mentality when oftentimes, especially with addiction, like Christy Love, for instance. And somebody else that we talked to in Boston was saying, like, if you're being exploited, the only way you get through it is by being on something. You have to be on something. Otherwise you as like you physically can't get through what you're going through.
1: They're numbing the pain, right? They're numbing the emotion. Absolutely.
0: And to, and it's just wild because a lot of places also won't take you if you're not clean like shelters or a treatment center. Like you need to be in a treatment center, but it's like the process of how do you get to, how do you get someone clean after everything they've gone through? Like there is not, there aren't enough systems in place for people to thoroughly be better and do better and get better. And there isn't enough people who are going to hold people like people's hands through the process to make sure that it gets done. And so we lose a lot of members of our communities without even realizing it.
1: Yeah. Well, this, this conversation just kind of reminded me of the arc of, of your podcast. I was wondering if you want to talk about it a little bit without giving away too much. But one way that I've described it to people is you started with one mindset or one point of view on the issue. And and then as you educated yourself over the course of doing this documentary, you had some really big aha moments. Could you just oh, talk? Oh,
0: totally. To Absolutely. I mean, I start, and that was really my intention with all of this was it, it ended up being a journey and I just wanted to be a guide as if you were going through the same thing I was going through and what it started out was I thought I had a focus on just trafficking I was not familiar with sex work and so I thought I wanted to do this documentary on trafficking in the United States and then when we started reporting I realized oh my gosh we can't we can't do this without actually reporting on the sex trade in the US and so it ended up being something that once we got on the ground and we spoke to people who were actually in it, we realized how many different faces of this issue there were, right? So it wasn't just illegal sex work or legal sex work, but it was also um, the housing crisis or addiction or government care or homelessness or uh, even social media. Like there were so many aspects of this issue that we really hadn't seen talked about. And it was because a lot of times, you don't really see people spending time on the ground and with people who are a part of this, letting them tell their own stories. And so what I wanted to do was make sure that everybody was telling their own story and I wasn't telling it for them. And we give, gave them the platform. And then you saw, you see like how everything falls into place. You see how everything is connected. And that's why I'm saying like, when we talk about homelessness and we talk about sex work or we talk about addiction, all of it is connected and all of it is the bigger are, are symptoms of this bigger issue of this lack of a social safety net.
1: Now, the trust, it seemed like you were able to build a rapport and trust with people pretty quickly. I'm sure that maybe the documentary uh, doesn't portray all the behind the scenes work. Yeah. That <laughs> um, but talk about that trust building, because I think for all of us in, in, in a helping service, you know, public service, wanting to help, yeah. Um, sometimes being frustrated, not not understanding why people aren't aren't accepting the help that maybe we're offering, or yeah. we can't build trust. What are what are what are some of those experiences you have with trust building?
0: Well, I, I mean, just in general as a journalist, my trust building is rooted in finding a commonality. So I am a Muslim woman who wears a hijab, and surprisingly. I was quickly able to build trust with sex workers because they related to me because we had both experienced people telling us how to dress and how to be, right? So I would be able to start there. I think in general, anytime you're trying to connect with somebody or get them to trust you, it has to be from finding the root commonality and building on that. And if you can't find a commonality, no matter how small it is, then you're not going to get anywhere with true trust because. If they can't relate to you and they see you as somebody in a suit or somebody in uniform who is trying to help them, they've immediately been taught not to trust you, and rightfully so. Because how many times do we see people um, unjustly being arrested, or unjustly being attacked, or unjustly being like uh, put in jail or prison or whatever? Like you, you have to come from their minds that you have to meet them where they are, and then give them that reason to. They'll trust. So say for instance, like if you've gone through an instance of sexual assault or violence or someone, you know, has, or, you know, someone dealing with addiction or, you know, somebody who's been homeless or you yourself have gone through those things, then you have to start there find that commonality and build on it because no one is ever going to trust you if they can't relate to you.
1: So I find that really interesting that almost like uh, you, you, the way you dressed connected with the way that they've been told how uh, maybe they were supposed to dress. So like there's some vulnerability that you both understood. Totally. Right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, i I would go into spaces and dressed the way that I typically dress talking like, no, just like as a person, and going in and making jokes or talking about my own instances of sexual violence or coming to them and saying like, Hey, I know, I know like how you feel about this thing. Uh, One of the sex workers I interviewed told me that she wrote a piece on how she related to Muslim women who wore the hijab more than anyone, because society was always telling us how to dress. And so there was a very great way to build on that. And it's just one of those things where like, even if it's like your, do you guys like, like the same sports team or same flavor ice cream or whatever it is, like go out of your way to find what that is and, and to see that, uh, and if you don't understand and you don't know then Mm -hmm. just tell them, I really don't know. And I really don't understand. And I just, I just want to be there. Tell Mm -hmm. me how I can be there. How can I be of service to you? How can I be of service to you? Don't assume you know what they need. Mm -hmm. Just ask them what it is because once you give them that power, and you re- like they realize oh like you're not putting them down and you're giving them you're empowering them with making that decision then the dynamic changes
1: is that is that also sort of showing empathy and giving people some some control often people who feel like they probably don't have much control at all in their lives yeah
0: absolutely and it's humbling yourself too it's like meeting people where they are and it's realizing like nobody wants to see somebody who's like all great and you know, has a badge and whatever coming to them and being like, I'm here to help. They, they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. They, sh- they shouldn't have to either. Like bring yourself to where they are and just ask them what they need.
1: Yeah. So I'm really taking away, be humble, be empathetic and really try to relate to people on a human level.
0: Absolutely. Sometimes- Put yourself in their shoes for a second.
1: Well, Nora, I think we touched on it, but I want to go back to it just because the opioid epidemic is, you know, a big deal here in Colorado as well. Um, and I think always it's whether it's the drug of the day, it's it's heroin, it's it's methamphetamine. But we fundamentally see a lot of um, the people that are involved with the court system touched by substance use disorders and addictions. And so, I just wondered if um, if you wanted to just give any more of a preview or a story from the podcast about the drug addiction or something that you learned while going on this journey that maybe you didn't think of until you started to encounter some of the folks that
0: you encountered? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a really darker uh, aspect of the journey. Um, I witnessed my first heroin overdose while reporting on this, and I had gotten the opportunity to even talk to a friend of mine for like a spinoff video interview who I like went to school with when I was a young, when I was like in middle and high school and she is a recovering addict. She'll still say she's an addict, but she is recovering and had such an incredible like recovery journey. But explain to me just like the mindset that you have when you're an addict. And I think that understanding that mindset and where where she was coming from really helped me understand the issue a lot more. One of the things she was telling me was like that she pawned her mom's wedding ring to get drugs. And she was like, and I never would have thought I'd ever do something like that. But when you are addicted to opioids, the same way you feel like you need air to breathe, I felt like I needed that to survive. And so and I, that, that line really stuck to me because I was thinking like that's ultimate survival, like ultimate survival. And, and it's such a deep, deep disease that affects so many people. But also when it comes specifically to exploitation, like it's such a vulnerable space for exploiters to go. There are like, one of the things that we learned where um, traffickers will say outside of like treatment centers or rehabilitation centers and have like their girlfriend go and talk to, uh, young, like young women who are leaving the treatment centers and be like, Hey, my boyfriend is in the car and he has some stuff. So people that they're vulnerable when they're trying to get better and be like, Hey, we have stuff. And then there you go. Like you're back into this cycle and also ending up being exploited. And so there is just such a different way of thinking about it. But addiction is something that's so difficult to like see and, 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 understand and so it's also one of those things that it's really hard to not be frustrated like I remember when uh I was going out with the uh, EMTs and the firefighters at one of the scenes there were just there were so many calls that day in Kentucky and they all just seemed so frustrated like when they got there they were like kind of mad and they're like, come on, you know, wasn't as gentle and stuff. And they're like, this is like the third time we've been at this house. And they were saying how many tens of thousands of dollars it costs every trip that you make and how one of the EMTs, like uh, on one of the trips there, the, the guy was like passed out and his hand was closed. Mm-hmm. So I opened his hand and there was a needle and the guy got pricked with the needle and got hepatitis C and like, and so he's like, how, and now he has to get tested the rest of his life. How do you not get angry at that? And how do you balance that? And how do you like, and he was like, we make an oath to save people. And so, but when people keep doing things that are going to kill them, how do you keep going back? And it's just like, I could never imagine being in those shoes and being in that place where you see your colleagues get hurt and you see the harm that's being done. But also like, these are people who are like, who need help. And how do you, how do you move forward from that so it's really about perspective i never was i i i just never understood it. i think one thing that came to me that was so surprising was like how many young people are traded for sex like how many minors are traded for sex because of parents addiction and mm-hmm. that was something that we realized in kentucky but also found out that most states don't don't really track that information of how many trafficking Cases and what that looked like in Kentucky, and Kentucky was a really hard place for this.
1: That that just froze up a little bit, but I just want to rephrase what I think you were saying was that most states are not keeping records of how children are being trafficked because of their parents' addiction, and in Kentucky, how many how many
0: kids are being trafficked? Like how many drug related trafficking cases there are? Okay, the correlation.
1: The correlation. One other thing before we get ready to wrap this up, I wanted to ask you, as you as you saw those workers who were helping people, saving their lives, and you could see maybe their frustration and another way of talking about it sometimes is the, the secondary trauma, just the secondary trauma on the people that are on the front lines trying to help. And I think Absolutely. sometimes court, people working in courts, uh, judges, probation officers, court staff, drug court coordinators are interacting with people building relationships and really starting to you know want to help people and then seeing the relapse seeing the overdose seeing the the terrible things that you were seeing on that day that you were riding along can you talk at all about maybe how you view maybe secondary trauma or post traumatic stress a little bit differently yeah. after talking to these folks and even for yourself doing the series
0: Yeah I think that for me a lot of I mean for me personally It's hard, right? Because you see the trauma that people are going through every day, and then you're like, "I'm not going through this." So how can I feel guilty, right? There's that. But then I learned about I learned about secondary trauma while reporting on this. I didn't know it was a thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then I, uh, I mean, I for the first time ever started going to therapy when I was reporting, and like went to do like a like a self care retreat and started kind of opening up because I realized for me personally and for a lot of people, I think certain things are very triggering because of things that you've gone through, even if you don't realize it. So how do, how do we, uh, one heal from those things, but two, how do we re, uh, redirect the way that we handle these situations to use our personal experiences as a way to build trust, to connect, to be better at our jobs. Right. So for me going through what I went through, helped me report on this issue, but if you've gone through certain instances and you're working, say, in law enforcement or in the medical profession or whatever, how do you use your experiences or the experiences of others around you to build trust with the people that need to be heard, right? And to be quite honest, it's still a journey for me. Like, I still, I'm still trying to figure out what the best way to go about it is, especially if you're somebody who uh, internalizes things a lot, which I do, I like take in people's emotions and feelings. I mean, my dad is also like a doctor, he's a pathologist and a medical examiner. And so he, he deals with cancer and death every day. And I always like try to gauge him on how do you give people such like terrible news or go to such like traumatizing scenes and like still maintain a center for yourself. Right. And it's a matter of like you realize you do your job best when you are your best, and so it's not it's not selfishness. It's making sure you're taking care of yourself so that you can do better for everybody around you because it doesn't do you any good to take that in. And it's really it's like a lot easier said than done. So that's what I'm learning right now.
1: Yeah. Well, Nora, I was wondering if you could just share with our audience just how they can find your podcast, what they can expect to learn, and yeah. a little reason why they should listen.
0: So the podcast is called Sold in America. You can listen to it anywhere you get your podcast: Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, you name it. And what you can expect is to truly be taken on a journey, to be taken on a journey um, throughout the sex trade of the United States. And what you can expect for sure is by the end of it, no matter what you started out thinking, you will you will say to yourself, "I never thought about it this way," because that has been the overall response, even to people who were involved in certain aspects of this trade, hearing the podcast, they still had different, um, different mindsets by the end of it, which was really amazing. And you should listen to it because I did all the work for you. <laughs> we, we, took two years, we took two years to finish this project and we wanted to make it digestible, understanding, and tell the story through a human lens And really make sure that the right people were telling their stories for themselves. It's a place where you can get this kind of resource and understanding and trust that uh, it's, it's accurate and it's being told by the people who are actually experiencing this.
1: All right. And then are there, do you have any top three takeaways for taking action for the audience or do you have just one big takeaway you choose if you have three or one?
0: Oh, well, I think, my overall takeaway from all of this is just being able to uh ask people how you can be of service to them all of the the professional spaces that we're talking about are technically spaces of service right um but don't assume you know how to be of service to people ask how you can be of service to them because uh you, you haven't walked into their in their shoes and we aren't familiar with everybody's experience and everybody has a different one um so if we really care about people we need to know meet them where they're at. And then also, I think one of the biggest things was just maintaining low judgment. I think it's impossible to have zero judgment towards people, but low judgment, which means that if, even if you have a judgment in your mind, don't act on it and let it pass. And you'll, you'd be surprised how many people open up to you, how many people connect with you, how many people trust you and how many people you can help when you maintain that mentality.
1: All right. I love that takeaway. And then my last section is always to get to know the guests. I have about four. Sure, or five yeah. Questions. All right. So, did anything surprise you about today's podcast?
0: Um, I think that it's just really cool that you're doing this. This right. is like the first time I'm doing something like this. I think that I didn't, I didn't, re- I didn't know there were internal podcasts, so this is great.
1: Oh, thank and thank you so much for being a guest. Yeah, it was just somewhere we're starting in Colorado, and I having, love
0: it. I love love love
1: having it. having right. someone like you. I just want the audience to know that. I reached out to you at late last year, and we've been trying to work on an a in-person interview, and it just the timing didn't work out. But I just want to thank you so much for like continuing that conversation with me. Thank you. A huge. This is going to be a huge um, opportunity for for my audience and, and the Colorado Courts and Probation. What's your favorite thing or place about Colorado?
0: Okay, so I'm going to Colorado next week i think i've never spent time in colorado i've only passed through it if i'm not mistaken so right now as of right now my favorite part of colorado is the mountains because that's all i see from the the okay. airplane um but i'm so excited i'm so excited to be speaking in colorado next week
1: yeah okay well if you're ever coming back for some time you can always email me to find out some
0: yeah places to visit you could also just send me some food spots
1: yeah, okay, yeah. Well, green chili is the big famous thing here in Colorado.
0: Green it's, chili, that's okay, like
1: green chili, yeah. So if you find any, like, restaurant that's serving Mexican green chili, give it a shot. It's kind perfect. of
0: perfect.
1: Like, they usually smother it on a burrito or eat oh. it as a with tortillas, and it's excellent. It and sounds you, so good. You just ask somebody for one of the local favorites. <clears throat> Where is somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? Mm, Tokyo. All right. I've been to Tokyo. You should definitely go.
0: Oh my gosh. Yay. It my my really parents cool. just told me they're going and I was like, wait, yeah. what?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely get out there. So what is your perfect meal?
0: Oh my gosh. Well, that's such a great question. I'm like the ultimate foodie. I love, 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 love food. Uh my perfect meal. I'm like gonna go into detail. Uh so my family is Libyan. So we have a meal called which is like a, it's like a pasta, but it's like very thin little pieces of pasta that are like hand done. And when you start eating it, it's almost like doughy because it's so soft with this like tomato sauce and these onions and like, it's just so delicious. So I love like a good traditional Libyan dish. Um, or I mean, I love Mexican food. That's like my favorite right now. So yesterday I had like chicken mole tortillas with uh, like street corn, and I eat chips and guac or avocado like three times a day.
1: Okay, last question is: What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue?
0: Mm. Well, related to sold in America, I believed that I think I believed that like the aboli- for a short period of time that the abolitionist approach to this where we Arrest men who buy sex was the solution. Um, but I don't think that that's the solution anymore. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll find out why.
1: All right. That's a great way to end. Once again, thank you. Thank and, you. And like I said, if you're in town, uh, always feel free to to reach out and we'll give you some um, recommendations.
0: Totally. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon.
1: All right. Bye bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab about. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, Listen. Listen, Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. action.